0: Hello, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to Redemption Church. I'm Ben. If you guys don't know me, I'm one of the uh, pastors here. Jeremy is our regular preacher, and he's not here this morning, and he was kind of gone all week, so I'm filling in. So if you don't like what you hear today and you you hate the way I talk, I'm sorry. Just come back, and uh, Jeremy will preach next week, and maybe you'll like that better. But uh, before we get started, would you pray with me? Uh, Father, I thank you. For this day, I thank you for these people you've gathered together to hear your word and to point each other to Jesus. We do thank you for your great love for us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would make that known to us this morning, that our minds and our hearts would be able to comprehend how wide and deep the love of Christ is for each one of us. And Father, that you'd set our eyes on you, that you'd set our eyes on Christ so that we would know you. And that you would use us to point each other there always. I pray, Father, this morning that the words I speak would be the words that you'd have me speak, and that the words people hear would be what you'd have them hear. Let our hearts hear what you have for each one of us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to be honest with you, this is terrifying for me. It always is, but especially now, because I have to look like, like, do this, and that's weird, but... Uh, This is the first time I've preached at this building, so that's a little terrifying. But two things. Number one, uh, Reggie said that I can't get up here and act like I don't know what I'm doing. So there's that. And then second of all, today I'm talking about bravery. So I probably have to just man up a little bit, right? Um, Well, this morning we're going to be going to Philippians, and I'm going to ask this question to get us started off. How does facing adversity and suffering in your life affect your relationship with God and with others how does facing adversity and suffering in your life affect your relationship with God and others i've been wrestling with this a lot and maybe you do from time to time too i don't know i'm sure you do it's everybody's problem right this is why pain suffering adversity hurt how does that affect our relationship with God and with others i deal with this a lot especially the first couple months of having a new baby in the house, which for the last few years has been like every month. Uh, If you don't know, I have three kids with my wife uh, that are two and a half years and under pretty much. Um, So, yeah, we have a lot of babies and I deal with this for the first couple months every time so far because I can't go to sleep at night because I'm so scared that they're going to stop breathing. Right? And you read articles, especially at the, the first one, like you're reading all these articles about becoming a parent and you got like baby magazine and parents magazine, I don't know if that's the real name of a magazine, but that, that one, and uh, you're reading it like in the doctor's office and like, well, you, you know, you're, if you're pregnant, I'm sorry, okay? <laughs> but it scares you. You already know what I'm talking about, right? And it, they talk about SIDS and they talk about things you should do to try to help prevent it, but we have no idea what it does, but you should just run the ceiling fan or put a pacifier in your mouth at night. and. Uh, Man, it scares me to death because of the joy that comes, like in that hospital room when you first see your kid. You know, it's something that you just you've never experienced before. It's a love maybe I've never had before, and uh, and it's a gift from God, and I recognize that. But then I'm so scared you will take it away. You know, I know a lot of your parents probably probably identify with me on that, and so I wrestle with it because I, I believe God's good. I believe he loves me. Just the fact that I have my wife and kids shows me how much he loves me and how good he is. But what if, right? How how does just the possibility of possible hurt and pain and suffering and adversity and all that, how does just the possibility of it affect my relationship with God? Well, for me, those first couple months, I'm always like, I just, I mean, I feel it happening, I know it's happening, but I me and God are at odds for a little bit, you know, and, and maybe I'm being too honest, I don't know. But I know that God is loving me and <laughs> has given me grace and generously given to me so that I can turn and do that to others, especially to my family. So God loves me, gives generously to me so I can love them and give generously to them. Uh, but all of a sudden that relationship gets weird and I turn more like against him and say, I've got to protect my family from you. Like I could do that, but that's the sense you get. Right? You're not touching my family. Thank you for giving me them. I know you're good and all that, but sometimes your goodness goes a little bit further than I can comprehend, and I don't want to deal with that part of it. Another, I don't know if it's suffering or if it's just adversity, but it's it, it hurtful, or I don't know exactly how to articulate it, but for me, uh, when I'm creative. You know, if you're a creator, which we all are, made in the image of God, in some way you create something. When I try to be creative or try to learn or enter a discussion with others, I find myself uh, often just completely paralyzed. Not able to be creative, not able to talk, not able to discuss with other people, but completely terrified and paralyzed or because of the fear of the possible criticism from somebody else or the you know the possible misunderstanding of what i'm saying because my words never come out right or just the possible the possibility that i might offend somebody or what they feel like so facing adversity and suffering affects my relationship with god and with others I think we can agree in a negative way. It turns me against God instead of accepting God's goodness and his gifts and then letting that propel me to, to do the same for others. It puts me against him. It makes me think that I could stand up to him. Uh, and that's, that's not good. And, and then with others, it means I can't be in community with them. If I can't talk to you, if I can't share the things that I'm, you know, that, that I'm passionate about or my that I'm learning about, or if I can't create something and not feel like I'll be misunderstood and hurt somebody's feelings or whatever, I can't be in community with you. So honestly, that's where I've been for a couple weeks. And it paralyzes me to the point of having a hard time praying, having a hard time reading God's word, because I'm scared of what I'll find. The truth is, The the other thing is the opposite end of that, maybe some of you aren't like me and being paralyzed by it, but maybe some of you, uh, some of us, you you know, in in entering a conversation or or a debate or whatever, uh, or putting our ideas out there, run to it, like completely lean on our own understanding in the face of adversity. Like you almost just go into it, but it's leaning on your own understanding and end up uh, at the expense of others, hurting others. That could happen also. But anyways the truth is in my life I don't think there's been a lot of real suffering or real adversity. I've had some some hard times for sure, we probably all have. And some of you in this room have dealt with real suffering and you've you've lost somebody really close to you or you've you know, I don't I don't know what it could be, but I know that some have dealt with real suffering for sure. I, on the other hand, don't, when I look back, I don't think I've dealt with it that much. I've never lost somebody really close to me. And I know it's going to happen one day and it scares me to death. Um, And I think that that puts, and I think that our culture in America is a lot like that, right? I mean, we're pretty safe here from real suffering. Things happen. Hurt happens here. Brokenness is all around us. But we don't see some of the real suffering that's all around the world. And I think that puts me, and maybe you, and maybe our culture, in in possibly the same place as where we find the Philippians in this letter from Paul. Uh, According to some commentators on on this uh, on this passage and on the letter of Philippians, Philippians, anyways, (laughs) according to some commentators, there was problems in Philippi at the at the moment at the time when Paul wrote this letter that. some Basically, some false teachings were being put out there uh, concerning the, their beliefs about uh, the end times and death and uh, heaven. And many Christians in Philippi had uh, fallen into the belief that as Christians, they were already risen with Christ into a heavenly life that had begun here and now. Uh, you know, I mean, at first reading, it's like, well, yeah, I mean… It's already, we are already entered the life of Christ, that's true. But the way this was working out is that it basically left people believing that they ought not to uh, have to endure hardship, that they were uh, exempt from suffering and exempt from adversity, or having to deal with that. And so Paul is in prison writing this letter because even Paul, who planted the church there, they're having some disdain for Paul and his gospel because they see that he's suffering. Right? And so Paul's like, this is not the gospel. you not believing in the gospel. There's something wrong here. And so that's kind of where we are. You see, the Philippians are kind of like us in that they weren't really enduring much suffering. And so they, I think that they even, got, they even got to the point where I find myself that the thought of suffering just stopped aligning with what they believed about Jesus. And so Paul feels like this has to be reformed and, and dealt with. And so he writes this letter. So, this then is the group that Paul's addressing as we read uh, chapter 1, verse 27 through chapter 2, verse 18. Uh, Philippians, it's right after Ephesians in the New Testament. And it says this Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God and the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul says a bit later in the same letter, in verse 20 of chapter 3, I'll just read it real quick. He says, but our our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. So Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's with that idea, I think, uh, of being citizens of heaven who are still waiting that he begins to confront the idea that the Philippians had, that they're already arisen with Christ into the the heavenly life. And we see this in verse 27. That's how he he starts off. Um, He confronts it with what we've called an already-not-yet mindset. That we know that we're already saved, but we're not yet done. That our Savior has not yet come again. Um, That all things are not finished. And that's set up against their mindset of an already-risen-with-Christ, a heavenly life, free-of-suffering type mindset. So let's read verse 27 again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Only, at all costs, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Or as the gospel makes us citizens, right, it's through the gospel that we become citizens, through the gospel of Jesus that we become a citizen of the kingdom of God, a citizen of heaven. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of your citizenship in the kingdom of God. And as a citizen of the kingdom of God, I was so worried. In my notes I wrote cog, kingdom of God, and I, was, I thought I was going to say cog, but now I just did. Anyways, uh, as citizens in the kingdom of God, we are not our own the old is gone. This we know, right? The old is gone. The new has come. Ben Ritchie is no more, really. I mean, that's gone. That part of me is gone. The new part of me, my identity is not found in Ben. My identity is found in Christ. The new has come. Christ has come. And I wish I could remember that all the time, don't you? Like, don't you wish that at every moment of the day, every time, not just sin, it is sin, but every moment through the day you can just remember whose you are, that you could remember that you don't exist anymore, that you can't be hurt anymore because it's Christ living in you and not you. Man, that would be, that'd be really nice if I could remember that all the time. But I'm forgetful and I don't. But he says because of that, so as citizens of the kingdom of God, we ought to remember whose we are. We ought to live as he lives. We ought to die as he died. We ought to live as our king lives, as a citizen of his kingdom, and we ought to be willing to die as he died. So we look to uh, chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. We look to Christ's example. That's my point. It's Christ living in us so that we can live as he lives, we can die as he dies, we can face adversity the way he faces adversity, we can suffer the way he suffered with joy. In verse... Or chapter 2, uh, 6 through 8, says this. Speaking of Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Jesus safe suffered and faced adversity and embraced it for the joy that was set before him. You know that from Hebrews, possibly. This is good news for us because we're his. And the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for us is the proof of his being all powerful, which, if he just took a moment, all powerful, he's powerful. That's frightening, right? But the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is that it's proof of his power and his goodwill toward us, right? It's, it's proof that he has good intentions toward us and he can see it through. He already has. So we're in good hands. He can be trusted. We're in good hands forever, for eternity. We live with him always. Our citizenship is in heaven, but we're still waiting on our Savior here. So we believe that good news, and that gives us a peace that allows us to trust him. Paul says it later in the letter. A lot of you may know this scripture. It's in in chapter 4, verse 7. He says, uh, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that what it is? The good news, if we really get it, proves to us who he is and that he can be trusted and that he has good intentions toward us and that he'll see it through and it gives us hope and that gives us peace. A peace that we just cannot comprehend on our own. It's a peace that helps us live as citizens of heaven waiting on a savior in an already not yet kingdom. And it's that peace that makes us brave. It's that peace that makes us brave in the face of adversity because it's rooted in the good news of Jesus, the person and work of Jesus Christ, our only hope. It's the peace that makes us brave in the face of adversity. It's rooted in the good news of the person and work of Jesus, who is our only hope the good news that God is for us and not against us, revealed through Jesus, would get us really, really far if we could just remember, right? We're forgetful people. We just are. And it's always been that way. Like, I'm not the only one that's forgetful. You're definitely forgetful. Our culture's are forgetful. Our whole world is forgetful. We've all forgotten God. And we always continue to forget God And it's always been that way. That's why we have this entire Old Testament where it's like, God helped them and then they forgot. God helped them and then they forgot. God saved them and then they forgot. God made promises and they forgot that he could deliver and so they went a different way, right? It's always been that way. We're forgetful people. But if I remembered, I would never cower to my opponents, whatever that may be. I would never cower to adversity. I would stand up in the face of suffering. I could be brave And I would never trust in my own ability to defeat any of it. I would only trust in Christ. For me personally, what does that look like? If I could be brave, if I could remember this all the time, if I was always focused and set on Christ, remembering the good news of Jesus, then I would be thankful for each day that I live and each breath that my family has. Which I am thankful for that. But I wouldn't stay on guard against him. Each minute I would hold my kids up, my wife up, and my life up, dedicating them for his glory, knowing that it's already not yet. We're a citizen of heaven and he can be trusted with all of us and he's good beyond my own understanding and in the suffering that we deal with here, we just can't completely get it, but we do know that he uses it and that he works all things together for the good of those who love him. I would trust his goodness beyond my own understanding in sickness and in health, we could do that. Kind of like a bride and a groom. But Paul knows that people are forgetful. And it takes more than just a one-time delivering of the gospel, people hearing it, kind of getting it, and then you don't go away and, and get it every day from then on out. Not on our own. This is hard. Anyways. Um, So let's read what he says in 1 27 again. Verse 27, chapter 1 27 through 2 5. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. But not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but for your salvation and that that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but you should also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one another... Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which which is yours in Christ Jesus. So He talks about striving together side by side for the faith in the gospel, for the strength to trust the gospel. I mean, what does that look like, to strive together, to be one of one mind, to be of one spirit, to be of one love, to maintain a love together? All these things that he talks about. What does that look like for us? And Paul, and, you know, we we'll go back to 2.2. He just says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. To make his joy complete by doing these things. What? <laughs> well, you know, Paul says... Okay, here's the gospel. Now make my joy complete by doing these things. Why? Why, why would, why would uh, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and, one of, uh, and of one mind, what does that have to do with Paul's joy? And this is what I think it is, because he knows where they are. He's written a letter to kind of confront that mentality that they have and to deliver the real gospel again, the whole gospel again, so that they would get it. Uh, but Paul knew that if the Philippian church could get this gospel, that it had the power to change everything. Uh, that they could go from a people who felt exempt from struggle and suffering, a people who thought they shouldn't have to deal with adversity, to a people who joyfully embraced it and ran to it. It would start with... This that's why I think he's going here. Uh, it would start with just enough suffering... I don't know if we often think about it this way, but it would start with just enough suffering for us to, humili- <laughs> ah, for us to be humiliated, right? For us to humble ourselves and to make, this, to, to make them one for one purpose. See, the gospel definitely gives us freedom to embrace suffering but we forget it. But it also gives us a freedom which we've been set free to have to be in right relationship with each other and right relationship with others based on how Jesus lived and how our king lived and how he died is to be humbled. And sometimes that hurts. Sometimes, no, it always hurts. It always hurts to humble yourself, at least for the moment, right? That takes a little bit of struggle, a little bit of suffering to put somebody else, to count somebody else as more significant than you. I'm talking about like you, husbands, and your wife, right? When somebody was supposed to take out the trash and they didn't, I'm just making something up on the spot. Somebody's supposed to take out the trash, and the other one says, well, "Why didn't you do this?" Whatever, you know. And then it's like, "Why are you coming at me? Why are you hurting my feelings?" Or, you know. And uh, and then and we bicker with one another. What if we remembered the gospel in our relationships as couples or as friends or as parents or whatever? And could actually count the other one as more significant than ourselves. Remembering that our identity is in Christ, remembering that their identity is in Christ, and we pointed each other back to that. Paul knew that as they unified and found greater joy in Christ, they would find more and more ability to struggle joyfully, to put themselves aside and remind each other of how Jesus lived through their own living, through the way they lived. They would actually model a living. was like Christ and that would remind each other of who Christ is and what he's done. They would hold one another up and they would always point each other to Jesus and that a community doing that never forgets. A community doing that never forgets the gospel and that would make them brave not forgetting the gospel the gospel makes them brave to stand firm in the Lord even when opposition comes even when we lose somebody close to us even when somebody tries to distort the gospel. Whether it's false teaching or persecution from outside the church, we together would have the strength and the bravery to stand firm with the Lord because of the gospel. And that's why we strive together side by side to stand firm in the gospel. Paul knows they need desperately a gospel-centered bravery and that that, Will advance the kingdom of God. So there's a whole lot more in this passage that we could go on and on and on about because I've only really covered the first half of what I read. I get that, all right? But I'm really looking for us to get a few things today. If we were doing a whole series, we could really do a lot. I don't know. We could do a whole lot of stuff, but there's a few things that I think that we need to get today. Number one, I want us to hear the gospel. I hope that you've heard the gospel. God is for you. He's not against you. Jesus proved it. He proved how powerful he is and that he died and he rose from the grave and he proved his goodwill towards you through that, that he laid down his life for you. So hear the gospel and be willing to embrace a little bit of struggle. Be willing to take, embrace just a little bit of sacrifice and suffering that it takes to be humbled and to begin to really strive together for the faith of the gospel. Embrace verse 3 of chapter 2. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Hear the gospel and count each other more significant than yourselves. That's number one. Number two. It's not, it's not tears, I'm sweating. Um, do that so that together we will remain intent on one purpose. That's what he says in verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Uh, doing nothing, uh, in the, in, so having one mind, and in the, uh, I'm sorry, in the NASB, it says to be intent on one purpose. All right. So to be focused on something together, our minds on the same thing. Uh, so what's that one purpose? What's that one thing to where we're supposed to focus our mind? What's the purpose we should be intent on? I thought since we talk a lot about discipleship in church, you know, and that actually that gets debated and stuff too. Like what is discipleship? I've, this quote I saw the other day actually from a, an author I really like um, who writes a lot of books about discipleship. His name's Mike Breen. He lives in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, but he said this. He said, discipleship is not about literacy or fluency, but attentiveness, attentiveness, attentiveness to Christ, right? What's our one purpose? Most churches would say like to disciple people. And, and, and for us, our vision statement is to lead people to Jesus, to lead people to Jesus, which really means make disciples that make disciples, right? So what's our one purpose? I like what he says there. Well, that discipleship, that making disciples is not about literacy or fluency. It's about attentiveness. It's about attentiveness to Christ. Our one purpose is to stay attentive to Jesus, to keep looking at Christ, to keep looking to Jesus, to know God and to make him known. That's our one purpose. I have an experiment for you to do after church. It should be really fun. If you're caught doing it, don't tell anybody you go to Redemption Church. Because uh, you might look kind of weird. But when we go out from this place, whether you go out to eat or wherever you do, drive to wherever you're from, and go somewhere where there's some people. Just somebody in here, please do this. I, I'm not going to. <laughs> anyways. Uh, when I, anyways. I think, <laughs> it's after church, do this experiment. Go to a place where there's a lot of people. And start telling people to look up at the sky. And see what they do. What do you think they'll do? I really think that if we start telling people to look to the sky, maybe they'll eventually look to the sky. They're probably going to be like, what? You know, Their first thing is going to be look at you weird or like question you or at what, you know? It's not a bad thing. And then try this other one, maybe in a different place where people aren't aware of what you're doing. Just stand there and look up at the sky and have somebody count and see how many people just look up at the sky. I don't know if it's perfect perfect experiment. It may really backfire. But I think that we would see that more people would look at, up at the sky if we're just looking up there than if we told them to look at the sky. I mean, isn't it, it, it's, it's like if I, uh, my wife, and, and maybe it's just my wife, I don't know, but if I like, if I saw a ball about to be thrown to hit Claire and I said, Claire, watch out a ball, she'd be like, huh? You know? But maybe if I looked at the ball being thrown, like, she would jump. I don't know. It's, it's, it's one of those things, like, sometimes somebody telling you something directs you to them first, but just looking at the thing directs you somewhere else. I don't know. Look up at the sky. I know that when I'm walking by people and they're just like, <laughs> I pretend like I'm not going to look, but I'm like, like, like what's up there? You know, people, you, you know what I'm talking about. So what? What does this have to do with anything? Just do it. It sounds fun. Uh, If we stay attentive to Christ, if we keep pointing each other just to look at Christ, if we just keep our focus on God and on Christ, on, on Jesus, if we, if we stay intent on one purpose, and that's to know God, people will look. I mean, what if, what if you're looking up like that, and people looked up and they see, I mean, people are going to look, they're not gonna, and then they don't see anything. Well, they're going to look down and they're going to, walk away, but what if you were looking up and they looked up and saw Superman, right? They'd keep looking with you. Like, oh my gosh, it's Superman. That's not going to happen. But that's kind of the same idea, right? We're looking up to Jesus, who's better than Superman. If we want to lead people to Jesus, to lead people to Jesus, we ought to just stay focused on Jesus. Stay focused on the gospel. And like I said, we're forgetful people and so we need each other to be able to do that. Gospel-centered bravery makes us one so that we can stand firm in the Lord. Not fearing opposition, experiencing persecution, uh, or adversity, or suffering. And we can rejoice in it because the kingdom of God advances. I thought about John and Peter uh, when, when Jesus is kind of telling Peter, like, hey, this isn't going to end up ending well for you. You guys know what I'm talking about? He's like, you're going you're to die, basically, is what he tells him. And John's there, too. And Peter's like, okay, yeah. Uh, what about him? What are you going to do with him? And Jesus says, basically, what's it to you? You follow me. We know John you know lives a long time. And I think that that's something we need to think about that some of us will suffer more than others and some of us will face less suffering and adversity than others. Both are for the glory of God. Both of them are for the advancement of the kingdom and both of them are to continue to point each other to Christ. We have to be ready to follow the example of Jesus whether we live or whether we die. We see it in Philippians uh, 1 is it 7? Yes. No. <laughs> okay, what's well, at the beginning of Philippians? And I, I wrote it down somewhere, but you know, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the heart that we have to have to live is Christ, to die is gain. So, whether we're like John or whether we're like Peter, we live. Christ, to die is gain, and they both keep the church pointed to Christ. They keep the community pointed to Christ, and they inspire bravery so that we can stand firm in the gospel, whether somebody's trying to skew it, or whether somebody's persecuting us because of it, or whether we're just dealing with the suffering and the brokenness of the world, and we embrace that with joy, knowing that it'll advance the kingdom of God. So, this is all about grace. This is all about the gospel. Uh, and it's, it's about what Jesus has made us into apart from any deserving or earning on our part. But, uh, as the author Dallas Willard said, uh, grace is not opposed to effort but to earning. And one of my favorite doctors, Dr. House, uh, says, doing something changes things, but not doing something leaves things exactly as they were. So to end, let's look again At verse 3 through 5, chapter 2, 3 through 5, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What I want for you today, what I want for me today, is to know the peace that makes us brave in the face of adversity. That's rooted in the good news of the person and work of Jesus, who is our only hope. What I want for you is the peace that makes you brave in the face of suffering that is rooted in the gospel of Jesus, who is our only hope. I want you and I to be brave enough to one practice regarding others as more significant than yourself, taking on some humility. What does that look like? Practically, I'll give you some homework. Some things to try. It's for me too. I need to try these things. Pray for your spouse. Pray for your kids. Pray for your missional community. Pray for your friends and pray for the lost. Pray for your church. Pray for each other. That keeps us focused on Christ when we take it all to him. So try that. If you're not praying, pray. And then pray more. And pray for everybody. I we'll pray that he'll keep you focused on Christ. And give thanks for them, especially, give thanks, especially for the people that you have the hardest time putting before you. Give thanks on purpose, especially for the people who you have a hard time counting as more significant than yourself. Like, practice it. Try doing it. It's hard. Write it down. Write down some things that you find good and valuable about them. Like, actually do that. List what's good and value about the, valuable about them, how they're more significant maybe even than you are in your eyes. See, I think that when we learn, I'm talking about us, Redemption Church. When Redemption Church learns that our strength lies in our differences and we learn how to leverage that, we will be in for some, something really exciting. Because that's how, that's how we were made. We were made different. We were made to work together. When we learn that we are all valuable and we learn to count others as more significant than ourselves and then we learn how to leverage that and to lean into that, we're going to be in, something, in for something really exciting because we'll keep remembering the gospel. And man, I want you to be brave enough to have an intentional, for some of you, I want you to be brave enough to have an intentional confrontation. What? Yeah. Yeah be brave enough to comfort, to confront each other in love, to point each other to Jesus. Proverbs 27.6 says, wounds wounds from a friend are better than kisses from the enemy. Do we believe that? I think so. I think think that's true. I I know it's true, right? Wounds from a friend are better than kisses from the enemy. And Jeff Vanderstelt, who uh, we've been reading a lot of lately, as we prepare for missional community training and stuff, says this, He says, I don't really care about your... He says, when we don't confront each other in love, what we're really saying to each other is, I don't really care about your discipleship. I don't really care that you grow up into the fullness of Christ. In fact, I care more about myself than you in that moment. And he says, uh, he goes on to say that one of the hardest things uh, for many of us is the dying to ourselves enough to risk the people rejecting us when we love them enough to talk with them openly about their sin. You feel that? It's really hard to talk, to confront each other in love, even in love, because you risk them not hearing it in love. You risk rejection. You risk being misunderstood. You risk criticism. You risk a fight. Some of us need to be brave enough to hear the gospel and be brave enough. In that moment, you're putting them above yourself when you confront each other in love about our sin. That's a good word, I think, from Jeff Vanderstelt. Let's be brave enough to confront each other or even to talk about our disagre- disagreements and do it and, and purposely value each other in doing that. And for those of you who love confrontation, maybe you should be brave enough to not have one, right? Maybe if you be quiet instead of confronting. Maybe, maybe not totally, but maybe go and listen as if somebody else has something or knows something that you don't, right? I don't know. So I started with the question, how does adversity and suffering affect your relationship with God and with others? I ended with this whole like, hey, let's unite together under the gospel and stand firm in the gospel. It's not disconnected. It's not disconnected. Paul connects it better than I do in Philippians for sure. And the whole book seems to talk to this. But the gospel calls us to embrace suffering with bravery. The gospel calls us to bravery that makes us live in unity with each other, that makes us live in unity with citizens, with other citizens of the kingdom of God, striving together side by side to know God and to make him known. This morning I'm just calling you to hear the gospel and be brave. Be brave enough to be in community together so that we would point each other to Christ, so that the world would say, what are they looking at? And look up.